Lord from Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written, written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive... You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me the working of his power. To me, though I am the least, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose of that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of God. Aaron's beard is not just the cool name of a band. They have t-shirts. How many house churches have t-shirts? Just one. Just one. Well, good morning, everybody. Church, is it for you a have to do or a get to be? Is church a have to do or is it a get to be? In other words, is church an external obligation, an activity that you have to do? Or is it an eternal identity that you cherish? Have to do or get to be? When I speak of the church this morning, I, I mean uh, not just new community, but I mean the church, the, the, the larger church body of which new community is just a small part of the church of Jesus. When you think about the church, I have another question for you as, as we ponder this idea. Is do you like church? Is, is the church something that you would say that you're proud of? Or maybe, is it something that you're proud to be a part of? Or would you say that there are times when you're ashamed of it? Uh, years ago, an article uh, was written on uh, Mahatma Gandhi's relationship to Christianity. And, and the author noted that early on in Gandhi's life, um, he... Um, he was really attracted to Christ. He, he, he read the Gospels in particular. He gravitated towards the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and he, he liked a, so much of what Jesus had to say. And so he decided to go and visit a church in Calcutta. And, and he went to this church on a Sunday morning, and he was turned away at the door uh, because it was an all-white church. Uh, the church uh, was for, for white people and, and Indians of the highest caste. And, and Gandhi, being of a lower caste, he was not allowed in. 
And, and so encountering this racism from Christians, Gandhi turned his back on Christ. He turned his back on the church and, and he walked away. And, and, and Gandhi is, is quoted as saying, if it weren't for Christians, I would be a Christian. My uh, favorite verse in all of scripture is from Romans 1 where Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to save. That is my favorite verse in all scripture because I wholeheartedly agree with Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to save. But I have to be honest with you, there are times when I am ashamed of the church. When the church fails to embrace the gospel, it saved it. I feel that way. You ever look at the church and, and experience hurt and pain? The church is a mess. But the thing about messes is that the worst messes make the best restoration stories. Any of you um, watch those uh, do-it-yourself uh, do shows, the, the rehab shows or the remodel shows? Anybody? I'm a big fan. Uh, I love it when they, they go into a junkyard and they find that car, right? And, and the person looking at the car, he knows what he's looking at. And even though to, to most people it's a pile of rust, it's a pile of junk, it's broken down, it's falling apart, the windows are broken, it, it's just, it's a complete mess, and yet the person, he knows what he's looking at, and he sees that car, not for what it is, but for what it's going to be. And so he takes that car, and he takes it into his shop, and he begins to tear it apart, and to, and to break it down into smaller pieces, and to, to get the rust off, and to paint it, and to put it back together. And, and what you see at the end of the show is this beautiful car. Right? It's, it's better than when it rolled off the factory floor. Or, or those shows where they go into an old house, right? And, and the house is, at one time, it was, it, it was beautiful with all this beautiful woodwork and it, it has all this character. And, and, and somebody's able to look at that and they're able to say, man, this has got good bones. There's something about this house that's worth saving. It's not worth tearing down. And so they go in it and they, they tear out all the stuff that's broken and everything that's wrong with it and they fix it up. And, and there at the end of the show, there's this beautiful house, right? Uh, my favorite is uh, Barn Builders. And, and Barn Builders is about a show that they go around and they find 200-year-old barns. And, uh, and these are things that are, you know, that they got termites in them, they got ants in them, and, and they, the wood has been destroyed and they're dilapidated and they're falling down. And yet these guys are able to look at these barns and be like, I can fix that, I can do that. And so they tear it apart, log by log. They fix the logs that are messed up or replace them. And then they go to a new location and restack those logs and it becomes this beautiful house. Right? Now, with all of these shows, the key element of the show is the reveal scenes, right, at the end. And what they do in the reveal scenes is they go back and they show you the picture of what it was before and then the picture of what it's like after. Right? The before and the after. Beautiful. That's the best part of the show, right? This morning, we're going to be looking at, at what Paul says about the church and his role in the church. And, and what Paul is telling us is when you look at the church, don't look at it for what it is now. Look at it for what God is making it into. See that the worst mess makes the best restoration story. And we get to be a part of it. So we started uh, the book of Ephesians a few weeks ago and the, the theme of this series on Ephesians is uh, Christ's new community. And what we see is that, that Christ is building his church and this new community just is, is made 
new in so many ways. We have this new praise, Paul begins off in, in chapter one, and, and out of this new praise, a new prayer that, that we would be enlightened to what God is doing, and we see this new salvation that is happening in Christ, and we are all being formed into this new temple, and so this morning, we'll look and see what Paul says about this new revelation that we have because of Christ. There is this secret that is, that is hidden in God that is revealed to Paul and which Paul gets to reveal to the rest of the world. And so let's begin. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you, Gentiles. Um, This is sort of an odd phrase, and and what we see later on in verse 14 is that um, he's going to pick up what he intended to start in verse 1, but he got sidetracked. It's like Paul didn't have an eraser. Like he starts verse one and he's intending to start this prayer and he's like, but I digress. And he goes this way. And so next week in chapter, or in chapter three, verse 14, we're gonna see him pick up and, and he's gonna dive into this prayer. But, but here in chapter uh, three, verse one, he says two really important things. He says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. On behalf of you Gentiles. That's the second thing. I want you to notice, Paul doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Nero. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Why would he say that? The the second thing he says is that I'm in prison on behalf of you. That I'm serving time for your sake. That's what he says. So why does he say that? So kind of in order to understand this, we kind of need to know Paul's history a little bit. In verses two and three, he says uh, this, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Um, Paul is assuming that his audience knows his story because apparently he's written another letter to them which we don't have, okay? So he's assuming that they know his story We actually know his story because we have the book of Acts. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time in Acts because we're going to tackle this question of how did Paul get in prison in the first place? So if we turn over to Acts 9, looking at verses 3 and 5, what we discover is that Paul's original name was Saul, and uh, and he was kind of like a Christian bounty hunter. Like in the beginning, he was opposed to Christ. He hated his followers. In fact, he went to the Jewish leaders and said to them, give me names of Christians and I will hunt them down for you. Like he was so opposed to Christianity and so opposed to Christ. Like he, he wanted to track down Christians and arrest them. And so here in, in, in this chapter, we see Paul, he's, he's on his way to go do just that. In verse three, it says this. Now, as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And from that moment on, Saul's life forever changes. Forever changes. He is confronted with the truth of who Christ is, and he will never be able to get away from him from that moment on. And he'll never want to. Um, He is blinded in that encounter. And so he has to be led by the hand onto to Damascus where he's he's staying. And and Jesus actually speaks to another guy named Ananias. And he sends Ananias to Paul to lay hands on him, to heal him, and and also for him to, to receive the Holy Spirit. Ananias, he, he sort of hears what Jesus is telling him to do, and he's like, but you don't understand. He's like a Christian bounty hunter. If, if I go to him, he might arrest me. And this is what, what Jesus tells Ananias. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles 
and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Any of you, when you began a relationship with Jesus, were told right off the bat that it would mean you're suffering? He must suffer. Paul, from the very beginning of his relationship with Christ, knows that his life will be about suffering for Jesus. And later on in his life, he'll give a whole list of the ways that he suffers for Jesus. He's bitten by snakes. He's involved in shipwrecks. He, he, he gets beaten up all the time. He gets forced out of cities. They, they try to stone him to death. Like, he suffers. And, and currently, when he's writing this letter, he is suffering. He knows from the very beginning that that, that, is, that is his role. And see, the interesting thing about Paul is that for him, following Jesus is not a have to do, it's a get to be. So later on, the story continues. Uh, Paul is taken in by Christians and um, he's taught in the way of Jesus and, and he's equipped and he's trained and he's sent out to go proclaim Jesus wherever he goes. And, and, and we see him on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. He and, and another guy enter this town called Perga and he, he goes to the synagogue and he proclaims to the Jews there in this synagogue about Jesus. And they sort of hear him out, but they, they say, come back next week. And so he does the following week. And so uh, Acts 13 verse 34 The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles." For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is Paul's mission. Wherever Paul goes, this is what he repeats. He goes into a town, he goes to the synagogue first, he goes to the Jews, and he preaches Jesus to the Jews, and they reject him. And he says, okay, no problem. And he goes down the street, and he begins to preach to Gentiles. Gentiles, if you don't know, that's anybody who's not Jewish. He preaches to everybody. And the cool thing is, the Gentiles believe. The Gentiles embrace it. And that was this, the reaction there in Pergamon. Paul preaches, and they're like, wait a minute, we, we're part of this? Like, we're part of the people, like, you're including us? Yeah, I'll sign up for that. But that wasn't the reaction of the Jews. Look at verse 50 in that same chapter. It says, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And isn't this interesting? The Jews said, we don't want the Jesus that you're proclaiming. But we don't want the Gentiles to have him either. We don't want this Messiah. But we don't want you to preach a Messiah that tells these people that they get to be involved with us that they're on the same plane as us, that they're in God's family like we are. We don't want you proclaiming the Gentiles are like us. The walls of division and racism and hatred by the Jews for the Gentiles is completely evident. And see, this is what Paul's saying he's he's put in prison for. This is his, his ministry cycle. He goes, he preaches to the Jews, they reject him, he goes, preaches to the Gentiles they accept. 
And churches after churches built up. Towards the end of Paul's ministry, Paul knows that the Holy Spirit is leading him back to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to get arrested for the purpose of preaching the gospel, for the reason of preaching the gospel. And so he's on his way back to Jerusalem and he's passing near Ephesus. And so he calls the leaders of the city to come out and meet him. And, and he has this to say to the leaders. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials. That happened to me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. Ultimately, he goes back to Jerusalem and it is the Jewish leaders that arrest him and make him stand trial. And Paul, he's a Roman citizen, so he pulls out that card and he basically says, I get to appeal to Caesar. I get to go to Rome and, and stand before Caesar for trial. And so that's what they do. They cart him off to Rome. And so Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians from that imprisonment. That's how he got there. But what Paul is saying is, I'm not a prisoner of Nero. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And I'm a prisoner for the sake of you. I'm a prisoner because you are included. And I want you to hear Paul. He's saying, this is not something I have to do. This is something I get to be. This is my joy. I wouldn't have it any other way. I know where I am. I know what I'm facing. I I know the suffering that I must go through. And I would not change this because this is what I get to be a part of. See, when you look at the church, do you see it as something that you get to be a part of or do you see it as an obligation that you have to do? So we turn to Ephesians 3, look at verse 4. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, in, in English, the word mystery means something that can't be known. Um, in, in Paul's usage, it, it's, it's not a, a mystery that can't be known. It's rather like a secret that's hidden. It's something that God knows, that he's always known, that he's held on to, and that at the right time, he's going to reveal this secret to who he wants to reveal it to. In this case, it's the apostles and the prophets, and they, in turn, get to reveal it to the rest of the world. Paul is saying, I get to be a part of the greatest revelation, and that is that God has done everything to bring you home. What is this mystery? Verse six, it says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you were here last week, we we talked about the fact that in Christ, the dividing walls between us and God come down. And in Christ, the dividing walls between us as people come down. There's nothing that stands between us in relationship anymore. Our dividing walls are brought down because of the death of Christ, because of his blood poured out for us. That's the mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles are in. And see, for Jews, this is really offensive. Because the Jews are looking at their history and they're like, but but we're the children of Abraham. We're the children of the promise. We're the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're the ones who were enslaved in Egypt, and we were the ones that were brought out, and we were the ones given the covenants, and we were the ones given the laws. We're the ones. And for you to say that non-Jews, that Gentiles get included into this family, that the promises God made to us, he's going to share it with them? It's offensive to them 
because their identity is wrapped up not in what God has done, but what they think they've done for God. It's offensive to them, but for the Gentile, it's beautiful. What's interesting about this is, is that it's not, it's not that great of a secret in, in terms of being that hidden. It's actually found throughout Scripture. In, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it was revealed to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. In uh, Psalm 2, 8, it says that the Messiah, he would make all the nations his heritage. Especially in Isaiah, we see Isaiah 42, it says the Messiah would be a light brings all people out of darkness. Isaiah 49 says that his salvation will reach the end of the earth. But, but really clearly, Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, it says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. See, even the Old Testament pro- proclaims that, that through these people, the Jews, the truth would come, the seed would come, the great uh, savior would come and through him, the whole world would be blessed. And the whole world could find salvation. This is good news for everybody. You see, it's something that you get to be a part of. Paul looked at this. He didn't say that this was, this was an obligation for him or something that he had to do. He was willingly a prisoner of Christ in prison on our behalf. It's something that he got to be. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. This is a gift of grace that I get to be a part of this, that I get to reveal this truth. This is a gift of grace to me. He continues on to verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God has been holding on to this secret since before the beginning. The secret of what he would do and how he would redeem it and how he would restore it. Like God's been holding on to this secret and now he's giving it to his apostles to to share this secret. But I want you to see this, this one word. If you underline in your Bibles, underline this word, this word unsearchable. When it says the unsearchable riches of Christ, some of your translations might, might have a different word. It, it, it might come um, in, in yours as unfathomable or inexorable or untraceable or inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite. Here's what I want you to know about this word. It is only found in Paul's writings. And I don't mean only found in Paul's writings in Scripture. I mean when you find Greek books that go back to the second century or the first century, you will not find this word anywhere. You know what that means? Paul invented a word. Paul is thinking about the greatness of the riches of God, and he has no words to describe it, so he comes up with one. And basically what this word means is you can't find the bottom of the riches of God. It doesn't exist. And here's what Paul is saying. I get to preach this. I get to preach the riches of God. I get to be a part of this. You look at him, he's, he's, he's in prison. He's suffering. 
Don't worry about that. I'm good. I get to be a part of this. Look at verse 10. It gets even better. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul in Ephesians moves us into the fact that there's a reality so much bigger than what we see around us. There is a reality so much greater than what we can comprehend. He's pointing to heavenly beings here. Some of them good, many of them bad. Some of them for God, many of them against God. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about demons. He's talking about angels, heavenly bodies. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying this thing that that Christ is forming, this church, this is like a sermon that God preaches to these heavenly beings. Now, to be clear, these are heavenly beings that God himself created. They're not on par with God. They're not gods. They're created beings. But but I want you to think about this, that, that in the beginning, God created these beings, and they were witnesses to his creation. They were witnesses to how he formed the universe and formed the earth. They were there when God made this earth and made this garden and put that tree in the middle of it and put these two human beings who were made to to bear the image of God. They were watching this unfold. They were witness of it. And they're watching God, and what is he doing? He's he's taking dirt, and he's he's making dirt, and he's making it come alive. He's making them living beings, and, and they bear his image like they're supposed to reflect what God is like to all of creation. Like they've been given all this value and all this worth. They're just hunks of dirt. What is God doing? These are beings who, who are watching them in the garden. Beings who are, who are watching them dance around this tree and, and decide to reach out and take fruit from this tree that God told them not to take. To disobey and disbelieve God. God, your creation's failing. It's, it's rebelling against you. They're witnesses to this. They're witnesses to the descendants of Adam and Eve as they just grow in their perversion and their, and their hatred and their violence so much so that God has to send a flood to wipe them out except for one family. And they're looking at this as like, this isn't fail. This, is, this isn't working. It's failing. It's broken. Look at what these people are doing. And eventually from this one family, there's another guy who comes and, and, and from him a whole nation of these people. And they're enslaved. And God does these mighty things to to show his power to them and he rescues them out of their slavery and he takes them out into the wilderness and and instead of being grateful, they rebel. Instead of worshiping him, they start worshiping this golden calf. God, your creation, it's not working. It's broken. They're witnesses to all of this. And then in the fullness of time, God himself takes on flesh and he comes and he enters the story. And he, he lives the life that all of these human beings failed to live and it's holy and it's righteous and it's perfect. But then, but then he's dying. He's being crucified. He's putting put to death by these people that God had made. God, there's something wrong with your creation. God resurrects him from the dead and from him, a new church, a new people. But they're just as messed up as the old one. They're just as sinful and they're just as hateful. 
God, what are you doing? And God's saying, just wait. Just wait. Don't look at it for what it is. Look at it for what it it will become because it is becoming a monument to the glory of God that he can take this mess and turn it into the most beautiful of restoration stories. That's what we get to be a part of. Brian Chappelle writes this. He says, The heavenly hosts are to look at those of us in the church with all of our sin, differing personalities, prejudices, and differences, and say, How did God do that? How did he get such difficult and disagreeable creatures together in one body to praise him? The manifold wisdom of God really is great. Our lives are preaching the glory of God to spiritual beings, is what Paul says. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You see what God has done. Things who were once rebels are now welcomed into the presence of God because of Christ. And this was the plan all along. And this is what God has done. And this is what we get to be a part of. He closes this section out in verse 13 by saying, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Gladly, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Gladly, I'm suffering because it's for your glory. See, Paul actually boasts. He actually brags about the church about what God is doing in the church that he gets to be a part of it. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting for our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul points to the church and says, you're worth it because God loves you. What God is doing in you. See, the reality is is. We as Christians, we can look at the church oftentimes and and, and we can be disheartened by it. We can look at religious leaders like Rabbi Zacharias who who were supposed to proclaim the gospel with his very life and he he denied it with his own actions. And we look at these these Christian spiritual leaders and and how they, they, they fall and they mess up and they fail. And it seems like they give the church a black eye and we can look at it and be like, ah, ashamed of that. We can look at our own history and we can see in in the history of the church, racism and violence. We can be ashamed of that. And how ugly and deplorable the church can be and has been at times. But you see, remember this is a before and after story. Remember your before? We looked at it a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians 2. Your before story is you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. Spiritually speaking, you were dead. But God made you alive in Christ. See, one is your before picture and one is your after picture. You were slaves, Paul says. Slaves of the world, slaves of your flesh, slaves of Satan. But God, now you're free. 
You were condemned under the wrath of God because of your sin against him. But God makes you righteous in Christ. See, that's your before, and this is your after. And you need to remember that, that God didn't make that, that change in your life because of your awesomeness, but because of his awesomeness. He didn't expect you to become good first before he would have loved you. He loved you while you were still a sinner. He died for you while you were still a sinner. That's your before, and it's because of him you have an after. And so we need to apply that to the, to the church. The church is not perfect, but she's becoming perfect. The church is a mess, but the greatest mess create the greatest opportunity for restoration stories. You see, it's only when you look up, that, look at that, that car, that building that's so decrepit and so broken down and so messed up, and you see the radical transformation that it goes through. I mean, the more messed up it is, the more powerful the restoration story. See, we're meant to look at the church and see it not for what it is, but to see what Christ is making it into. It's get to be a part of the greatest restoration story that has ever taken place. Church isn't something that I do. It's something that I am. It's something I get to be. Is a church for you, is it an external obligation that you do, that it's apart from you? Or is it an internal blessing, identity that you get to be? What difference does that make for you? What difference will that make in how you live? 